1: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Karen Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike.
0: Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs.
1: Rachel Simmons is an internationally recognized educator and author of the New York Times bestsellers, Odd Girl Out, The Curse of the Good Girl, and Enough As She Is, How to help girls move beyond impossible standards of success to live healthy, happy, and fulfilling lives. I'm gonna take a pause there and just say that as a pediatrician, I have referred to Rachel's books countless times, particularly The Curse of the Good Girl. So if you don't have these titles and have not read these books, press pause, go take a quick look, and then here we go for the rest of her bio. As an executive coach, Rachel guides leaders globally to lead with purpose, courage, and emotional intelligence. And as a facilitator, she is renowned for her ability to seamlessly integrate social science research with both authenticity and humor, which is key. Rachel serves on the faculty of the Google School for Leaders and was until recently the director of the Lewis Leadership Program at Smith College. She is co-founder of the NGO Girls Leadership and has served as an advisor to Oprah Winfrey and Sheryl Sandberg. As if that isn't enough, she's an ABC News contributor for television program Good Morning America and appears regularly in the media as an expert on gender and parenting. Rachel's writing has appeared in so many publications, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And she lives in Western Massachusetts with her daughter.
0: The first encounter I had with Rachel was the mind-blowing experience of reading Curse of the Good Girl when I was starting my company, Dynamo Girl. But what was so powerful about it was how it impacted me and how much I related to the Curse of the Good Girl, the fear of perfectionism as an entrepreneur, the fear of failure, the crippling fear of failure. And it was a total game changer for me. I then had the pleasure of being trained by her and the wonderful Simone Marion at Girls Leadership now seven years ago, if you can believe it, Rachel. I know. She is, as you will see, smart, funny, brutally honest, utterly straightforward. So strap in and get ready for a wonderful ride with the amazing Rachel Simmons. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
2: Thank you. I am already having post-podcast blues because I've been looking so forward to this. So <laughs> I'm already upset that it's almost over.
0: You can come back next week. It's okay. Okay. Good. It's like the first day of vacation. <laughs> kind of, not totally. So Rachel, you have been an expert voice in girl world for two decades, more than two decades. And now you're working increasingly with the people they've grown into, college kids, adults, executives. What have you noticed about how things have changed for girls or not, if that's the case? Well,
2: first of all, it really is such an honor to be with you. And I am so excited that you have created a podcast devoted to this little discussed explosive period of development um, for our children. So thank you for that. I actually want to partly answer in a different way and just say that one of the things that I've learned is that there isn't a ton of daylight between girls and women, uh, psychologically speaking, in terms Mm. of the challenges that they deal with. So for example, one of the great dilemmas that girls are presented with around adolescence and this was discovered in the late 80s early 90s by Carol Gilligan and her graduate students is the dilemma that girls face around how much can i be honest about what i really think and feel and how much do i need to protect you from my feelings and take care of you and want to be liked by you. And that dilemma follows women well into adult development and maybe starts to become less pernicious around the age of, let's say, 50, which is that stereotypical time when women are like, you know what? I don't give a shit what you think. (laughs) So I I do want to say that that has made my transition to working with adults more seamless than I would have expected because I was initially like terrified and beset with, quote, unquote, imposter syndrome. But in terms of, to get more to your question, what has changed for girls. Honestly, I would say a couple of things. I mean, one would of course be social media, which we can come back to, but another is I think like a more pronounced conflict between the, be the good girl who takes care of people, but also be an ambitious um, beast in everything that you do. And I would say at the same time, we continue to tell girls they can do everything and be everything, but we're not really preparing them for the conflict that they will face internally. And we're certainly not preparing them for the bias that they will face in the industries that they enter. So I think that as we raise our expectations of girls, we're not really preparing them to meet the outside world and how the world will relate to them as they continue to achieve.
1: What does preparing them look like?
2: Oh boy. Well, (laughs) I think, (laughs) <laughs> this, this is, poor, I wish my, my nine-year-old were here to tell you, oh, Cara, let me be, let me, I'm <laughs> sure she would just say, let me count the ways and how my mother was trying to prepare me. Like I will sit there with my daughter before I go on Good Morning America. And she'll, she loves when I put on makeup. Of course, I naturally gave birth to a child who loves makeup and glam and all of the things because the universe provides all of the challenges for us as parents. And I'll say to her, I just want you to know that there's research that shows that if I don't put on makeup, people will take me less seriously. And of course she's like seven. She's like, you know, doesn't understand half of what I'm trying to explain. But anyway, I think what preparing girls looks like is actually we could, we could learn a lot from African-American communities in this country and in the U S and by that, I mean, Traditional African American families are raising their children early to recognize discrimination and systemic oppression. And uh, you know, you will hear young black boys talk about how they have been taught by their parents if they are pulled over driving a car you put your hands on the steering wheel, right? Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because there is so much that has been corrupt in law enforcement and so much that is racist in law enforcement. If you contrast that with the message that many girls, not not African-American girls, because again, they are often getting a different kind of training, but that many girls get growing up, which is you can do anything. You can do anything a boy can do. You can do anything if you work hard enough. It's all in your merit. We're not preparing them because we're not saying to them, hey, listen, you could work really hard, but also you could work for a manager who finds you too aggressive And who decides that you're not very likable because of that. And you're not going to be promoted as quickly as a result. And that's not your fault, honey. Like that's the world that you're living in. That's not quite sure yet how comfortable it is with how powerful you are. And those are the conversations I would love to hear more parents having with their daughters, not to depress them, but to shield them because, and then I'll stop talking, but because what I notice now in my work with adult women Especially those who are leaders and who are striving to advance, is that if you've been told you can do anything and then you encounter bias, you don't get mad
1: at the system. You
2: get mad at yourself.
1: Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding. Which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around and find your umbra plus lots of other puberty info at myumla.com. That's myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend.
0: We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies.
1: So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press, pause, or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to
0: factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately, I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and
1: with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We
0: have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them.
1: Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. One of the things
0: I've noticed in raising a daughter who in some ways is a lot like I am in that she is, you know, lively, loud, sometimes aggressive physically or verbally, outspoken, opinionated, you know, all of those bossy, right? All those like wonderful terms that are vilified is that sometimes that stuff starts closest to home, like with extended families and relatives and the messaging happens like from grandparents or, you know, aunts and uncles or things like that. And so we've actually been using those opportunities from people who love her and believe in her and care for her that those kind of unconscious deflating comments to help her recognize them and like separate herself from them. And it's hard because it's, those are almost the most painful people to acknowledge that behavior in, but it's also like, here's someone who loves you and is also doing stuff that may make you feel crummy.
2: It's interesting. I I was thinking about media literacy as -hmm. you were talking and it's like family literacy. But Cara, what what were you going to say?
1: I was going to say what's interesting in my house, having an 18 year old girl and a 16 year old boy is how the baton has been handed directly to my daughter To educate my son, because half of the equation, of course, is teaching the non females of the world how to also be part of this conversation and raise women up, right? And so, my daughter at 18 is part of a generation that recognizes that, and she has no problem educating her brother about it on a daily basis. And I'm very grateful for that. And I've learned a lot from her about how to communicate those messages effectively and ineffectively. She's taught me that side too. For us to raise kids and parent kids around the philosophy of there's a long road. You can be great at a lot of different things at a lot of different times. I think it's an important mantra for every kid of every gender.
2: So I, I think I would push back a teeny bit and say, yes, of course, that's the nature of life. And I think if a high school, the high school girls that I talk with, like I spoke this week with a bunch of them in Australia, actually, and they talk about how they get this pressure to excel at every single thing they do 100% of the time. I'm sitting there, of course, Cara being like, You can't be anything 100% of the time. They're saying that the very terms of my success, that what is being communicated to me is that I must excel at everything, that I must specialize in all kinds of things, right? That I can't evolve, that I have to be this perfect package. And when you take that pressure and then you plug it into that psychology of girls, which is I want to please, I want to get it just right. I want to you know, work as hard as I possibly can. It's such a toxic recipe. It's such a toxic brew. And there is, I think you're right that we may feel that way as parents and yet what their lived experience is, is just, that's not feasible. I can't, I have to be this way right now.
0: So Rachel, I mean, one of the challenges is that parents will say to their kids, all sorts of stuff about what they want for them, right? Like, it's fine and life will change and pivot. And then we message completely differently when they come home and it's like, how was the test? How did you do? Did you finish? Did you answer every question? Did you email your teacher about their essay, right? Like we were sending them mixed messages. And one of the most powerful parts of Enough As She Is is when you talk about helping our girls, but I think this is true of all of our kids, unload stuff, right? Like take things off of their plate, remove things from their resumes, which is like a kind of thing that no one really talks about. Everyone's like, what's your story? What's on your list? What's on your, you know, application? And I, I really love that idea, particularly as we see growing rates of depression and anxiety. It's like, you know, we really, I love the idea of unloading stuff. Um, Car, did you want to ask
1: a follow-up question? Yeah, well, you've teed it up, which is what are the sources of that pressure that they feel? Because of course you're right, they feel it. Like I'm I'm living in my la-la land bubble saying, this is what I wish would happen. And you're reporting what really happens, which is of course, you know, what we hear and what this is what bubbles up across the world, I think, certainly in well-resourced countries, it's what bubbles up. And so the question becomes, what are the sort is it parents? Is it social media? Point us to all the the spokes of that wheel.
2: Well, it's a lot. I mean, I definitely want to I want to go back to what Vanessa said about the kind of like space between what parents say they value and what they do in practice. Because um, Sunia Luthar, the academic at Arizona State who studies affluent families and resilience of affluent teenagers, as well as at-risk teenagers, although she actually says affluent teenagers are Mm -hmm. at risk. Mm -hmm. She has done some wonderful research that basically where, where they'll interview parents, she'll interview parents and she'll say, what's most important to you? And the parents will be like, I want my kid to be happy. And then they'll go and interview the teenagers, the kids of those parents and say, what's most important to your parents? And the teenagers will say, they just want me to get A's. So in other words, the kids, totally. sniff, it out. The kids sniff out the BS. I mean, teenagers are of course, incredibly incisive. They're great. Their bullshit detectors are on high alert. So I do think that self-regulation, and I don't say this, that this is an easy thing, but that we as parents have to do a real deep dive into how did you grow up? So I'm by way of example, I grew up with enormous attention paid to me when I excelled. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I don't mean to like throw my parents under the bus. You know, my, I'm a first generation American on my mom's side. There was a lot of excitement about being in America and having new opportunities. And so excellence, assimilation, achievement, these are all huge immigrant values and, and there was a lot of celebration of me. And so one question I have, or that I work on with myself is how much excitement am I showing my daughter when she comes home and says, I scored two goals today in PE when we were playing hockey versus, you know, I played with this person on the playground or here's a new song that I really like. And that's just a very kind of concrete thing to think about an inventory to take of yourself because our children are so desperate for our approval. And like any animal that is being rewarded for a certain behavior, they will continually seek out our approval around achievement if they know that's how to get it. So I would say we have to look at ourselves. That's the very, very first thing. And in fact, I think while all stages of parenting require self-reflection, there's something that happens as our children become more independent of us, where we actually don't need to do that labor of taking care of them and schlepping and all of that. And we need to recoup that extra time and energy and turn it on ourselves and look at ourselves.
0: That's really what our children most need. Yeah, I mean, we talk about in puberty and in raising adolescence that you have to leave your baggage at the door. But the first step in leaving your baggage at the door is identifying what that baggage is. Dude,
2: who can leave their baggage at... Dude, come on. <laughs> who sorry if I have to call attempt, you dude. But like, what do you leave baggage at the door? My baggage is right. like stapled to my ass right now. All right, now. well no, I'll
0: give you a <laughs> perfect sorry. example. Yeah. Speaking of asses, I'll give you a perfect example. My ass is a perfect example. Okay. So, that as... segue. That's <laughs> a, well done.
1: Well, that's my
2: best segue of like January 2022. Thank you.
0: I'm going to I'm going to take a bow and I'm going to end the recording now because uh, we're done. <laughs> For me, weight gain was a huge part of my struggle in puberty and my awareness and shame around my changing body and feeling you know, too big in my body. And so as my own kids started to get bigger and gain weight, it was like my internal monologue. And as Zoe Bisbang said on our episode with her, she's amazing, by the way. If you don't follow Full Bloom project, it's incredible. And she said to us, notice your disgust. And she used the word disgust, which is so powerful and was like almost shocking to hear her use that word. Notice your disgust. And then, you know, identify it and then put it to the side. And so when, for me, as I watched my kids' bodies grow and change, my first instinct was like, oh, they're getting bigger. Oh my God, they're going to look like me. And that's the worst possible thing that could happen. And then I was like, okay, I got to get over it. I got to move that away. I can't get rid of it. It's stapled to my ass, as my husband calls it, my conscience." As in my conscience, because he's like, if you didn't have a big ass, you'd be a bitch. But since you have a big ass, it makes you empathetic. But it doesn't go away. But I, as you say, I learn how to regulate it, I
1: learn how to contain it. Okay. But there's leaving your baggage and then there's self reflection. And I think they're different. Let me give you an example. Okay. You've got you and your booty <laughs> and that baggage. Okay. But my booty the- baggage, your booty baggage. Take the very, very simple example of you have a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 16-year-old, somewhere in there, child sitting at the table, and you're having a great deep conversation over dinner about why you should not drink and drive. You are having this conversation while drinking a glass of wine at a restaurant, and now you are going to drive home. So that to me is the self-reflection that Rachel's talking about. Like now that we get to drop all the things off our to-do list or many of the things off our to-do list, those are the moments to go, wait a second, since they do as we do and not as we say, maybe we ought to think about what we're doing and how we're modeling the behavior and change that a little bit, which I distinguish from baggage that may look very different. Yeah. I mean, we're hypocrites we're all hypocrites. Yes. In puberty, it is our job. It, when our kids are in puberty, it is our job to take stock of the hypocrisy and either acknowledge it and own it and state it. And you can do that. Like some adults say, I'm legal. This is the law, blah, blah, blah. And they will defend their behavior at the dinner table, which is defensible. And other adults will be like, hmm, you know, their immature teen brain won't be able to make that leap. And I want to model different behavior so that they start to follow different rules instinctively because there's nothing instinctive about it. It's all learned because they're seeing that modeling in me. Like they're just different paths, right? So Rachel,
0: let's use the example of your ninth grader comes home and you've been telling them all fall it's a big adjustment to be in high school. And I just want you to have fun and it's okay. And your grades don't matter. And I love you so much. And I'm so proud of you. Right. And they come home with a D on a math test and you are like, what is going on? And you didn't study and you're so disrespectful. And like, we're working our butts off to take care of you. And you can't like, just do this one little thing. Right. So like, What does it sound like if I'm claiming to want my kid to be happy and I am wanting to foster an adult who will become someone who can feel good about themselves? What does it sound like when they come home with a really crappy grade?
2: Well, it's a good question. I was just having my own internal meltdown, imagining myself in that situation. (laughs) Um, Sorry if I was (laughs) pausing for a second. I think generally speaking, lead with questions. Actually, I always lead, try to lead with empathy. If you can summon your empathy yep. for the child to say, yep. God, that must be really disappointing. And then, you know, just leave it there for a second. Pause. And then scream the pause
0: inside your own
2: head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, right. Um, rip all your cuticles off quietly behind your back. Um,
1: I've never done then,
0: that.
2: that. Yeah, I'm been, like <laughs> bloody fingers over here. Totally. So, uh, right. I mean, isn't that what parenting is? So I think empathy followed by questions. and try to have these questions neither be leading nor judgmental. And again, this is your best case scenario. If you're having a bad day, you know, you might need to just let it rip. Okay, oh, but like if, if, you've, if, you're, if you've slept well and you're fed and you're not lonely or angry or tired or what all that stuff, like, you know, maybe give this one a try. So can you tell me a little bit about how, how that happened? And you might hear something like, well, the teacher hates me. And so like, <laughs> I totally tried to ask for help and she didn't have any time. So I'm not suggesting you're going to get like a beautiful response, but I think poking at, tell me how we got to this place. Like, tell me about how, how'd you prepare? What did you do to prepare? When did you start preparing? Was there something like really clear about what you didn't get right? Are you, is there something, is there a particular thing you're not getting or is it everything? And just sort of do some interviewing. So those two things. And then I would also say that if she's all lit up and her amygdala is going bananas, also not a time to have a conversation. God, I wish I could take my own advice. (laughs) So much easier to tell other people to do this with their own children. Have a nice day. But anyway, yeah, like when they're upset, I mean, not only are they not going to retain anything you tell them, so they're not going to be taking away any great advice from you, but they're also not going to be their best selves and be in a place of self-reflection. They're just going to try to fight and survive uh, that conversation. So I would say empathy, curiosity, and questions, be really careful about how lit up they are and It's okay to wait and let them decompress and come back to the conversation. And that's just part one of my answer, but I want to stop there.
1: So can can we pull the lens back a little bit though, through the lens of perfection and social expectations that we opened the conversation with, how do you advise parents and the adults raising kids to both do what you've just described and answer the question that will inevitably come back to you, which is, how is this not going to ruin my life? Or how does this not put me, you know, how, what's that balance? And and what are, what are your best pearls of wisdom for the adults in order to lift that pressure off of kids so that we can change the trajectory of what happens for them?
2: I'm like, what are my best pearls of wisdom? Oh, God. Um. <laughs> No pressure.
0: So (laughs) Give us them all in the next four minutes. I mean,
2: again, I think that something that parents often don't realize, especially when we're talking about teenagers and even preteens, is that they really crave empathy. They just want to know that they're not crazy for feeling the way they feel. So it actually, and I'm saying that because at that age, you really can't do much more often than just reassure them your ability to shape their lives has completely been upended. Like you can't control their lives the way you could when they were in elementary school. And I also know that teenagers just deeply crave knowing they're not insane. So it actually doesn't really work to be like, everything's going to be fine. Like, don't worry.
0: Right. That never works.
2: I don't, I mean, I, it's sort of like the equivalent of when somebody tells me to calm down, I'm like, shut up. Oh my God, my worst.
0: Right. So,
2: so you, so I think you say, listen, I totally understand why you're this upset. Like you are certainly going to school in a system that is telling you, you have to be flawless. And, and that is so messed up and ridiculous. And I get why I get why you feel this way. That's what you see all around you. And I need to remind you That like, you're here on this earth to learn and learning means making mistakes. And number two, learning takes a long time. Honestly, I'm right now just like fixated on how long it's taking my nine-year-old just to learn how to load the dishwasher properly. I mean, this kid needs 12 different iterations. It's, I I don't know when we're going to get there. You're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. And let me just explain to you, like, I'm like, I'm learning so much by watching this because I'm like, right, it takes a long time to learn how to do things. And we don't want to take that in. We want our children to learn fast and almost as if they're adults, figure it out and not have that long lapse of time.
0: I have a suggestion about the dishwasher, by the way, because my 51-year-old husband is still incapable <laughs> of loading the dishwasher. But here's what he did when I was complaining that things weren't getting clean. He Googled a YouTube video of the best way to load the dishwasher. And now he has learned how to load the dishwasher. So I would take the responsibility off your plate. I'm like, thank the Lord. I just now have to teach the other four people living in a house. But if you watch a YouTube video with her, she might listen to that more than she listens to you.
1: Right. Because it just proves the point that they, you know, it all depends on who is giving them the advice, right? One thing they don't learn certainly through the tween years and often through the teen years is how to do any of these things unprompted. Like there's how to load the dishwasher and then there's, there's a dirty dish. You should put it in the dishwasher. And those are yeah, two exactly. totally different learning trajectories.
2: But you, but you see my point, right? Is that things take time to learn and we really need to remind our children that you can also just say to them, listen, okay, you got a D? Oh, well, what are you going to do for the next one?
0: Right, that's right.
2: This is what happened. I mean, and again, turn inward and you ask yourself, how do I relate to my own mistakes? Do I eviscerate myself when I make a mistake? Because if the answer is yes, and if your child, for example, watches you lose your keys and you're like, I'm such an idiot in front of her or him, unfortunately they learn a lot from us and the scripts that we use to navigate our own failures so i honestly every time i mean when you ask me that question what do you what's the pearl for your child really 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 the first answer is what do you do when you mess up mm-hmm. how do you talk to yourself what has your child seen you do do you have the capacity to say oh well how will i do it differently or do you overthink for days you know and and dissect what you do and I know this is maybe not the answer some people are looking for. People want to know, what can I say to my kid? But that's where a lot of parenting advice has really hit a very low ceiling because that's just kids, as we've pointed out, they know immediately
0: when we're not walking our talk. When one of my kids had an issue in class, his older brother turned to him and he's like, so... And then he looked at me and laughed. What strategies can you use next time that might work differently? And I was being mocked. Winner. Winner. my face. Huge winner. Like, I was like, all right, dude, you can mock me, but that's a lot nicer than being like, how are you such a moron that you can't figure
2: this yeah, and out? And can I tell you something? That's a huge win. Your kid just clearly has internalized. Look, kids mocking you, that's just like breathing. They've internalized what you've said. That's the best proof.
0: One of the things... When we think about our kids messing up, that comes back to me over and over again. And it's, it's, it's rooted in reading your books, Rachel. And I've, I've taken it on in all aspects of my work. I once had a group of seven and eight-year-old girls. And you know, we, in our Dynamo Girl classes, we try to make it like really mistake-friendly and don't worry. And we use sports to help them take risks. So something happened in a class and we were sitting in a circle and I said, you know, why is it important to make mistakes? And every girl around the circle could be like, we learn from making mistakes. It's important to make mistakes. We only get better when we make mistakes, right? And then it hit me and I was like, hey, what does it feel like to make a mistake? And they're like, ashamed. I feel ashamed. I want to run away. I want to hide. I hate myself when I make a mistake. And I was like, okay here we go, here are the two poles in terms of what we tell kids and what they actually experience. It was like utterly mind-blowing. And somehow with our adolescents and frankly, our young adults, we have to figure out how to get those two poles closer together so that they can actually stomach it and not BS us and give us the answer we want, but actually be able to mess up and move on from it. Can we ask you about gender or the ungendering of life right now? Sure. So one of the things we try to do in the podcast is to make things as universal as possible because so much is about the human experience, the lived experience, which is not necessarily tied to gender. But as people who have all worked in gender-specific ways. Cara's books, Rachel, all of your work, lots of my work is very tied to gender. What are you seeing, Rachel, in terms of how new understanding of gender or the lack thereof or the spectrum of gender is changing the way we think about kids and adults and empowering them and preparing them to be independent, autonomous people?
2: Well, I can't say this is an area of great expertise for me, but I can, if it's okay, speak from my own experience as a a gay woman and like how I've related to that myself. I remember hearing, because I ran a girl's summer camp for a long time and then stepped back and someone else took it over, but I was still closely involved with it. I remember beginning to hear about non-binary campers that were coming to our camp. And I remember just being so confused. And then I was working on a college campus and being like, what is this thing with the pronouns? Like, I obviously was like 150 years old, but this was, you know, several years ago when it really first started to surface. And now when I look at the breadth of possibility around temperament and hobbies and interests and that kids are afforded as they expand their definition of gender, I'm really I'm really taken with all the possibility that, that gender offers. And for example, you know, again, back to myself, when I was growing up, there were a lot of qualities that I I had that would be coded as conventionally masculine. And I, I never felt any desire to not be a girl, but I think if I had been given permission to think about myself as being maybe an unusual girl or potentially a girl that was on the continuum in some way towards maleness, I don't think I would have felt like there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was something wrong with me a lot when I, especially when I was in middle school, you know, I laughed too loud. I made too many jokes. I got in too much trouble. So gender is so confining for kids because it prescribes so much about who and how you are supposed to be. Giving kids more flexibility in turn, it's not just a name. It's not just a pronoun. It gives them permission to be more who they are. And that I just, I'm so glad. And I think that that would have been a component, a really a helpful component to my evolving queer identity.
1: I, I don't know that i've ever met a kid who came out of middle school and said that was a great experience in <laughs> terms of self confidence and how i write so i think it's a universal and yet you're describing a way to make that universally difficult um sort of you're you're raising the the bar a little bit for everyone with that comment and i agree wholeheartedly i think the the graying of the gender spectrum has given permission for a whole world of people to unlabel something, which is ultimately really positive. You have a nine-year-old who will one day be a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old who will one day go to a party. And temperamentally, that nine-year-old may be the kid who is experimenting and risk-taking. And that nine-year-old may be the kid who is parenting every child who is risk-taking. And I'm wondering how you, knowing what you know, how do you anticipate parenting, not, not to disclose who your child is so much as like, how would you anticipate parenting either one of those things through that lens, right?
2: Yeah. I mean... God, I don't even know. That's the thing that scares me the most. I mean, I I guess the lens that I have is, I think if we want our kids to be able to reach out to us when things get hairy for them, we have to continually tell them that we expect them to make mistakes and that the essence of learning is mistakes. And this is particularly important for social media parenting, We cannot raise our children on social media by telling them that if they make one false move and their grandmother finds out about what they posted, I mean, blah, blah, blah. Like, in fact, it's the opposite. We have to say, I know you're going to make a mistake because you're learning a new skill and going to a party is a new skill and figuring out how to like parent the risk takers. That's all new. How can we possibly expect them to make the right decision? always? We need to proceed from the place of, I know you're going to mess it up. And I just want you to know I'm here and I'm not going to get mad. I mean, I might have feelings, but I'm never going to punish you for telling me that you're still learning. That's the key. But it's not something you can start doing when they're 16. I think you have to keep driving it as much as possible.
1: And parenting the caretakers is hard too. And I just, a shout out to the parents who have the child, and it's usually a girl child who is looking out for everyone and is always the designated driver and is always you know, making sure everyone is safe and that job becomes very big for some kids and it becomes a real stressor for some kids.
2: Can I go back to the question about what happens when your child comes home with the D?
1: Yeah. I, I
2: want to, I don't want to give the impression that all you should be doing is empathizing and asking questions. Cause I, that's not, I said it was part one. I I just want to circle back to that and, and complete the response, which is, you as the parent I think have the right to communicate your expectations around academic performance but performance should not necessarily map to a particular grade or number that you're looking for it should it should be about demonstrating like mastery in certain areas so it should be about like like you expect your child to bring home their backpack every day with their books in it or you expect your child to devote a certain amount of time to studying I mean, I I don't know how much quote unquote punishing or having consequences for this stuff when kids are 16 years old is really effective. But I think what you value, what you say you're looking for, I don't think kids are going to respond well to, I expect you to get an A, but I think they're more apt to respond to. I expect you to spend a certain amount of time on this. I expect you to ask for help from the teacher. If you don't have what's in place, And to say, I'm disappointed and I want to see it be different. And if you're not trusting, they can do it on their own to play a more supervisory role to make sure it is happening. But it's far from a neat process.
0: I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. My 11-year-old is finding math really challenging this year. And he came home. I picked him up from the bus and he was like, Mom, great news. I got an 81 on my math test. And I like... I took a second and I was like, okay, he's defining that as success for himself and he's feeling really proud about it. I am gonna like be super psyched with him because I know it was really hard. And if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be like celebrating like gangbusters and 81 on a math test with my kid, I'd be like, no way. I don't know what you're talking about. But to him, that's how he was defining success. And I think in some ways, before they're 16 and 17, having them define for themselves. And as you say, Rachel, kind of some tactical and some strategic ways, what success and accomplishment looks like rather than it being like a top down, here are the grades I want you to get. Here's the GPA. I want you to have whatever, whatever, but having them say, Hey, what are your goals for sixth grade? Or what are your goals for this exam period? Like I want to hear from you.
1: So when we end these episodes, we always just try to wrap with one quick pearl. Yeah. Okay. You ready, Rachel? I'm ready. What's your What's your puberty tip to share?
2: I, I knew this was coming. So I have meaning like, what do I wish... I told my, well, let's well. do it that
1: way. What do you, yeah. So let's do it through the lens of what do you wish someone, what do you wish you had known or what do you wish someone had told you when you were younger, when you were. Yeah, I wish someone
2: had told me that my breasts were normal and weren't weird. Cause I just had like major fear that there was something wrong with them because they didn't look like the pictures of breasts that I suddenly began to furtively see. So I just want to know that my breasts were normal. And also I just wish someone had been like, dude, you're so gay. You just get <laughs> like you're the gayest. You're not ever even gonna find any interest in a boy. So won't you please stop trying? It would have just been a dream if somebody would have just done that for me.
0: I wish we would have been friends then, Rachel, because I would have. Would you have told me you. I was so mm-hmm. gay Vanessa? also yes. you've been? Like, I was that person. You, down? you have spinach in your teeth, and you're so gay, Rachel. Both those things. Yeah. You By the really way, have spinach. I, I
2: value. I value both of those actually <laughs> uh, highly. <laughs>
0: I don't even think we need to do our pearls, Cara. I think, mm. I think Rachel just got it and won. Yep.
1: Basically, um, yes. Um, Thank I you. wish we were all
2: going out. Wait, but I wish we are going out for a glass of wine now.
1: <sighs> I mean, you know, right? someday. Even though it's 10 a.m. in Los Angeles, me too.
2: Uh, well, you know, it's Friday where we it's are. Five it's, five, it's five o'clock somewhere. It's five o'clock somewhere. Truly, you are wonderful both to talk to. Thank you for making me so comfortable. To talk about every part of me.
1: We love having you, you for coming on such Please a privilege. Come back.
2: come back. I, of course, anytime.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the puberty podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at the at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myumla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye.